0: Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you If each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. In our study of Matthew chapter 18, we've come to see it as a how-to chapter. There's lots of things that that we've learned. We've, We've learned about how to be great in God's kingdom. In order to be great, we have to be small. We have to become like a child. We have to become teachable, simple, humble, dependent. We've talked about how to escape hell in verses seven through nine. We've got to identify with Christ and with his sacrifice. We've talked about how to exercise church discipline in verses 15 through 20. What do we do when there's injury to one another, when there's separation from one another? Remember, Jesus has been talking about finding ways to stay together instead of staying apart. And now Matthew recalls a question by Peter and a parable by Jesus that illustrates God's great grace and incomparable mercy and profound forgiveness. The question involves the application and withholding of forgiveness. And so part of the point of this passage is the absurdity of withholding forgiveness from those who have sinned against us. And so he begins with the problem of forgiveness. And you might not think about forgiveness as being a problem, but it's a huge problem. In verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? So Peter comes with a problem. He knows that he has to forgive. But he's asking questions how often, Um, what are the limits, how much, how often. And in the first century world in which Jesus lived and which Peter lived, the rabbis were no stranger to this question. This is something that they had talked about at great lengths under several different circumstances. And in the ancient world, the rabbis offered a kind of three strikes and you're out solution. In other words, you should be generous one time, two times, three times. And it could very well be that Peter is thinking, you know what? I'll double what the rabbis do and throw in one for good measure. The problem of forgiveness is rooted in the reality of human injury. But Peter at first misses both the meaning and the purpose of forgiveness. Remember, part of the point of the purpose of forgiveness is to affect reconciliation. As I am fond of saying and have told you often, it only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. And so... We are immediately reminded of the fact of his pressing question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I am and I forgive him? He, Warren Wearsby writes, quote, He was sure his brother would sin against him, but not him against his brother. Peter's second mistake was asking for limits and measures. And this is going to prove very, very important later on in Peter's life. Because guess what? Peter isn't always going to be the victim. He's going to be the subject instead of the object. Jesus has already spoken about this subject in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. And earlier in Matthew's gospel, remember in Luke 17, he says, I want to warn you, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. In those very small verses, in in those citations, we begin to understand something. That forgiveness begins with honesty about injury. And it takes place in the context of relationship. Peter uses the term, how often shall my brother sin against me? And in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. The implication of those words imply intimacy, friendship, relationship. Remember, it's not just a brotherhood, I think, physically or culturally. But I think that in part, he's talking about a brotherhood that's based on a right relationship with God in Christ. Because guess what? Forgiveness and reconciliation isn't always available for people who aren't your brother, who aren't your sister, who don't have the tools. So forgiveness begins with honesty about injury. It also seems to take place in the context of relationship. The idea, remember, part of the point of this chapter is Jesus is inviting you to find ways to care about each other and to be concerned about one another. And so in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Clearly, Jesus did say Seven times in Luke seventeen three, but what exactly is he saying? He is in effect saying math isn't the answer, even though Jesus is using math to illustrate his answer. Jesus isn't suggesting that we count or keep track of the numbers. He isn't for the literalist going, "Oh, you mean seven times seventy? Well, let me just." I wasn't very good in math in school, but isn't that 490 times? So a person can offend me up to 490 times in a day, and 490 times in a day come to me and say, I'm really sorry about it. That's not the point. The point that's being made is that there should be no limit to a believer's willingness to forgive another believer. In the context of what has already been said in verses 15 through 20. What is that context? A recognition of sin. A willingness to confess sin. A willingness to forsake sin. A willingness to be reconciled. All believers should approach the subject of forgiveness on the basis... Of the forgiveness that's offered by God through Christ. Does God himself offer forgiveness apart from the recognition of sin. And apart from submission to Jesus as the Savior. The answer is no. You don't get to go to heaven just simply by saying, you know what? I don't really need to accept Christ. I don't have to recognize my my sinfulness. That's not what the Bible teaches. Clearly, the forgiveness God gives in Christ is beyond our comprehension, but it is a forgiveness that's rooted in recognition that we've offended God. It's rooted in repentance, a willingness to turn from sin. We've all faced the problem of forgiveness at one time or another, whether offended or offender. You see, the one thing we know for sure is that we aren't going to make it out of life without either injuring someone or someone injuring us. Someone said something. Someone did something. Someone did it on purpose. They did it by design. They did it by accident. The action caused harm. For some of you, insignificant harm. For others, significant harm. The injury or the harm cut like a knife or burned like fire. Something happened. Something happened to you. Something you did to someone or something that someone has done to you. And it's changed how you feel about this person and what you think about this person. Maybe they did it privately. Maybe they did it publicly maybe they offered some criticism maybe you were the object of their cruelty people have conflict in home in the church in public in private maybe the person was a stranger or worse a friend or even more worse a family member Mothers and fathers are tasked with the protection and love of their children. And so often the greatest injuries come from the people who are closest to us, who are nearest to us and dearest to us. We all have been hurt in some way. And the moment we come into this world, you know what happens when a baby is born. A complete stranger slaps you on the behind. And we begin to understand something, that it isn't in order to hurt us, it's to awaken us. Some injuries are real. Some injuries are meaningful. Some injuries are purposeful. I read recently that researchers have devoted a great deal of time to this subject of forgiveness. The article said, quote, Unforgiven And unforgiving people have higher rates of stress-related disorders, cardiovascular disease, clinical depression, as well as lower immune system functions and higher divorce rates. Forgiveness contributes to a healthy life. And by virtue of the fact that forgiveness contributes to a healthy life, that must mean that unforgiveness contributes to an unhealthy life. But Jesus offers this parable. In verse 23, look what it says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle the accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay his master, he commanded that he be sold along with his wife and children. And all that he had. And that payment be made. Now, this particular parable is found only here. In Matthew's gospel. It doesn't appear in Mark or or Luke or John. In our brief studies of parables thus far, I've reminded you that a parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. Part of the point of this passage is that we need not retain reason to hold on to grudges. We might even more accurately call this parable not the parable of forgiveness, but the parable of unforgiveness. In what sense? There are three main characters in our story. A king, a con man, and a bad credit customer. In ancient days, just like now, it wasn't unusual for a king to order an internal audit. Now, it's not unusual in business for the business to have a review of the books, and it's not unusual for a church to review its budget. And in the ancient world, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a certain king who wants to go over the books with the chief steward or the bookkeeper. This is the day of reckoning or the day of accountability. And so when Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wants to settle accounts, we are immediately left with the impression that in the kingdom of God, there's accountability that makes sense to you right in other words in the context of matthew chapter eighteen there is a sense in which jesus wants to leave us with the impression remember what he said over and over again i need you to love the lord i need you to love each other i need you to care about one another i need you to be there for one another and so he's likening the response that Peter has given, he's first of all bringing to Peter's attention that the kingdom of heaven isn't a place where you escape accountability, but that there really is accountability. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, the person is almost certainly a governor or the ruler of a province or a person who's been tasked with obtaining the revenues from that province. We're hard-pressed to imagine the huge sums of money that's being talked about. You see the word a talent or 10,000 talents, and you might be thinking, how much money exactly are we talking about? Well, in the ancient world, a talent wasn't just a certain amount of money. It was a measure of money that was measured in weight during the time of Solomon and David. And then when you fast forward into the first century, a talent was the amount of money in gold or silver that a person could be expected to make in a lifetime. Now, again, even that is a relative number because in the pl- world in which we live, it's possible that a person makes $2 a day. It's possible that a person can make $10,000 a year. Um, some people can make $100,000 a year. Some people might make a million dollars a year. Some people might make a million dollars in a lifetime the point that you need to understand isn't the exact amount that is being measured here, but the idea of that this is an amount of money that a normal person would make in their lifetime, and so the amount of money that this person has managed to steal is 10,000 lifetimes worth of money. To put it in perspective, King David donated 10,000 talents for the building of the temple. According to the book of Chronicles, he ordered that 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver be given. Haman offered the king of Persia 10,000 talents. To wipe out the Jews in Esther chapter 3 verse 9. So how is that even possible? How is it possible to steal that much money? You have to be a con man. Now again, I want you to think about it. Jesus is talking about a global kingdom where a particular person is in charge of a certain area. And, and, and again, to put this in, in perspective... The total tax burden of the provinces of Judea and the Galilee to Rome, they were tasked by the Roman Empire to give the king or the emperor of Rome 800 talents a year. And so, how do you embezzle that much money and not have anything to show for it? So it makes perfect sense that the man is unable to repay the debt. The king orders the man and his family to be sold, in some sense, to recover part of the loss. Let's just say for purposes of discussion, he has a fairly large family. He has a wife and as many as ten kids. Is even that many people going to replace the 10,000 lifetimes of income that's been lost to the emperor? The answer is no. And so in verse 26, it says, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. The servant prostrates himself before the king, begs for patience. He makes the statement, Master, have patience. I'm going to pay you back everything. I have a question for you. Does he really believe this? Some say no, and I'm going to... I'm inclined to believe that. In other words, could a normal person who owes 10,000 lifetimes worth of income reasonably pay it back? Probably not. He's either lying or deluded. Let's do the math in an entirely different way. Imagine. The country's debt is $19 trillion. Oh, you don't even have to imagine it. It is. <laughs> What's hard to imagine is that number. I went on the uh, debt clock this morning. It's actually $19.930 trillion. That's how much the national debt is. Now, to put this in perspective, let me help you understand. If we paid a dollar a second back, that would be $86,400 in a day. That amount comes to $31.5 million in a year. In order to just pay $1 trillion back at a dollar a second or at $31.5 million a year, it would take 32,000 years to pay back $1 trillion. So now, Let's just round up the 19.9 to 20 trillion. Again, most of you are clever enough. Two times 32, that's 20 years, times 32,000 years in order to pay the current debt back a dollar a second, $86,000 a day, $31 million a year. How long would it take to pay back the national debt? Six hundred and forty thousand years. You're, you're shaking your head because you're going. Let's just be blunt here. What are the chances of the government paying back twenty trillion dollars? So now, remember, I talked to you earlier about a con man and how much how much con do you have to have in you to steal that much money? How can one person steal ten? 1, lives worth of income. How much money does a government have to steal that it would take six hundred forty thousand dollars, or six hundred forty thousand years, a dollar a second, eighty-six thousand dollars a day, thirty-one million dollars a year to just pay it back? Here's part of the point that I'm trying to make: Is the servant's situation hopeless? Does it look like our debt circumstance is hopeless? Yeah. But we're in exactly the same situation in our relationship with God. Our sin debt is hopeless. If we work day and night for all eternity, we couldn't make our injury towards God right. If one sin disqualifies you from heaven and qualifies you from hell, can you imagine what a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of rebellion, a lifetime of disobedience, a lifetime of insult, a lifetime of injury towards God, what has it accomplished? In verse 27, Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Think about what Jesus is saying. What caused the master of that servant to be moved with compassion? I'm gonna suggest to you he isn't moved with compassion on the basis that he believed the servant. By the way, if he's any kind of an honorable king, does he realize that this person has stolen the money? Does he also realize that in order to steal that much money over that period of time, it shows a profound character flaw? So is he willing to forgive him because he thinks in, in his heart of hearts and in his soul of souls, this guy's basically a good guy? Probably not. The king doesn't simply honor the servant's request. He doesn't simply give the man more time. He cancels the man's debt, and he lets the man go, and he lets his family go. Question. Do you think Peter and all of the disciples listening at this point are shocked? I think so. What kind of a king... Would forgive such an enormous debt, a debt that was rightfully owed. But Jesus reminds us that the God of the universe, moved with compassion, sends his Son to satisfy our debt. He will satisfy his own character and his own sense of justice he will do both and at the same time exonerate you on the basis of what Christ has done for you we deserve to die just like the man in the parable the wages of sin is death we deserve to go to hell but I'm going to remind you of something. Most people in our culture and society simply don't believe that that's true. They don't really believe that. They believe that they're basically good people and they are willing to concede that they sin, but they typically aren't willing to concede in such a way that they believe that their sin deserves punishment. But this is what the Bible's. Revelation is that the wedges of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Bible's revelation is we do deserve hell. But the Bible's revelation also is that heaven becomes available because of what Jesus has done Some people state that they don't believe that they have a problem. But in a moment of honesty, they discover that they really are con men and con women. And like the man in the story, one day our crimes will be revealed. We're like the con man. We've been busted. We've been exposed By the way, the moment the king says, I'm going to forgive you the debt, and I'm going to release you, and I am going to release your family, is the debt still owed? The answer is yes. Has a loss taken place? Who has incurred the loss? The king has incurred the loss. And you would think, you would think that when a loss of that magnitude has been incurred, that it would generate an enormous sense of gratitude, an enormous sense of grace, an enormous sense of, of relief and hopefulness. But tragically, this isn't where the story ends. In light of that grace and in light of that favor and in light of that forgiveness, how should this man have lived his life? Look what it says in verse 28. But that servant went out and found out or found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. The servant finds a man who owes him money, a debt. The amount is a hundred denarii. This is about three months wages. A a skilled laborer uh, would have been paid a denarii a day. If you could read and write and you were a scribe, you could get paid as much as two denarii a day. With a denarii, you could buy a cup of wine, a loaf of bread, and a place to stay. So a hundred denarii at about 30 denarii a day is about three months' wages. He doesn't simply demand repayment for the debt, but he acts violently. The fellow servant falls down at his feet and begs him to have patience. And he also extends the promise of repayment. The difference, of course, isn't just simply in the degree of debt. One is impossible to pay. The other one is in fact possible to pay. And again, in the ancient world there were serious consequences for those who couldn't repay their lawful debts. The money lender could seize the person or their family. The money a lender could require someone in the family to work until the payment was repaid in full. The debtor could be thrown into prison. The debtor could be sold to satisfy the debt or his family or until such means could take place so that the satisfaction could take place. In the parable, the king exercises compassion on the man and his family. The man receives undeserved forgiveness. Compassion motivates the forgiveness. The forgiveness isn't cheap. It still involves a willingness of the king to bear a substantial loss. The servant doesn't earn pardon. And he doesn't even have a realistic expectation of recovery. And again, it's one thing to experience forgiveness. And it's another thing to have it in your heart. And that's where we need to pause for just a moment. Because that seems to be part of the point of the parable. Think carefully about what you've read. Did this servant experience forgiveness? The answer is yes. The big question that you should be asking yourself is this. How is it possible that you can experience that kind of forgiveness and in experiencing that kind of forgiveness, it doesn't make you better, it makes you bitter. It doesn't make you soft, it makes you hard. The experience of forgiveness didn't make the man more loving and more forgiving, but more Bitter, more violent, more hardened, more willing to injure others. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, a person who has been set free ought not to live as though he were still in prison. Certainly there ought to be in our hearts a deep love for God who has forgiven us and for his children as well. It should not be difficult for the forgiven to love the forgiven. It is not enough to receive forgiveness. We must also experience forgiveness in our hearts. And that's the key. That's the insight that we were looking for. Apparently, it's not enough to receive forgiveness. We have to experience forgiveness in our hearts. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but look what it says in verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now the fellow servants couldn't ignore or excuse the gross behavior on the part of the forgiven servant they told their master, everything that happened. How could this person, the servant, the object of compassion, the recipient of mercy, grace and forgiveness, have so little to give to others? And that seems to be the meaning in part of the parable. We know the answer. The man who received forgiveness never experienced forgiveness. Truly, or he took it for granted, or he refused to allow it to change his life. I want to suggest something to you. We not only receive forgiveness from Christ, we experience it in our hearts, which becomes the evidence that we're willing to share it with others. I think it's safe to say that the recipient of the forgiveness didn't experience it. He gave from his heart what he had in his heart. Bitterness. Anger. Resentment. And the need. The desperate need for justice. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Peter was willing to forgive his brother seven times. This wicked servant wouldn't even extend forgiveness one time. The consequence? He returns to prison. But he isn't the only one who goes back to prison. His wife goes back to prison. His family goes back to prison. And a lot of people are going to suffer. So why is it that small hurts become such large grudges? The king in his anger turns to the man and he turns him over to the jailers. By the way, among the Jews, torture was forbidden by law. But in the Roman world, it wasn't unusual to hand people over to experts who could find ways of discovering and recovering assets. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Because if you could steal 10,000 talents' worth of assets, is it possible for one human being to consume 10,000 lifetimes' worth of goods and services? It's out there somewhere. They're gonna be handed over to the torturers to find out exactly where all of these things went. No wonder Paul Writes in Ephesians four thirty two. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain if we practice forgiveness. The servant in the parable refused to share forgiveness. I'm going to suggest to you the reason why he refuses to share forgiveness. It's because it's not really there. It's not inside of his heart. He's willing to share his anger. He's willing to share his frustration. He's willing to share his outrage and his violence and his condemnation. But because he's never experienced true forgiveness in his heart, he can only share what's really There. And it becomes an explanation in part. In other words, it's not a justification for the believer to withhold forgiveness. Rather, it becomes a powerful story meant to instill within the believer. The notion that if you've experienced God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness, it should be made available to others. In some sixth sense, the wicked servant never really conceded the depth of his sin or the depth of his injury. He wasn't convinced he was a sinner. And most people who withhold forgiveness, they're not convinced. That they've done something wrong. Or it is of such a nature. That it requires real, real work. He was caught. And he was sorry. He was willing to admit his transgression to his Lord. But there can be no deep experience of forgiveness without a deep sense of sin. And without a deep sense that that sin has caused harm. You know, we sometimes ask our children, when they've done something wrong, to say, sorry. So you're sorry, but they don't. They're not aware of the severity of the, of the offense. They're not aware of the injury. They're not aware of the difficulty The servant was living in a world of justice, but not in a world of mercy. And he was quite content to make a provision of mercy for himself and for his family. And quite discontent to do the same for others. And when we fail to forgive, we place ourselves in a prison. But we rarely go alone. And so in verse 35, Jesus says, So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother, his trespasses. Jesus understands that the father will honor our choices. The father has already made the decision that we can't hold on to pride and humility at the same time. We can't hold on to forgiveness and unforgiveness at the same time. Do not hurt the fellowship, Jesus is reminding us, by harboring grudges, by refusing to forgive, by making a provision. Well, does this mean the believer forfeits salvation when he or she refuses to forgive his or her brother from the heart? That's not the point of the passage the point of the passage isn't that there that this king gives forgiveness, and then withdraws forgiveness. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is the warning. The theme of the chapter is recognition of sin and reconciliation of brothers and sisters to one another. And clearly, it's a warning that God cannot forgive us if we don't have a repentant heart, if we don't have a humble heart, and you won't experience the forgiveness of God unless you do experience it in your heart. So how in the world do we apply Peter's question and Jesus' parable to our lives? Well, I think that perhaps one way might be to take a little inventory. Let me ask you the most simple question. Have you received forgiveness? Did you experience it in your heart? Did you receive forgiveness? Have you experienced it in your heart, evidenced by your willingness to give it to someone else? It's impossible to give something. That you yourself have never received. What Jesus is talking about can't be earned and it's never deserved. But if you harbor grudges, if you find reasons to remain estranged from people who are your brothers and your sisters, then these are the important questions that you have to ask yourself. Again, one of the evidences of grace and forgiveness in your life is to be in a constant and a consistent state of wonder where you go, really? Lord, you've forgiven me. My sins are forgiven. My burden has been lifted. My sin debt has been paid. I have been exonerated. I have been granted entrance into heaven on the basis of the of the mercy of God and the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. One of the most compelling ways to determine if you've experienced forgiveness is if you find yourself constantly asking the question, why in the world would you save me? Another is an ever-increasing tenderness and compassion towards others in spite of their sin. One of the evidences of difficulty is an ever increasing hardness and judgment and a stubborn resolution to withhold forgiveness. We may have been the recipient of forgiveness. But have you experienced it in your heart? With the evidence that you're willing to share it with others. It might come as a surprise to you. But the point that Jesus is making in part is that we need to forgive each other from the heart. All day long. We may not be able to forgive each other to our face but we should be able to from our heart and of course the test of forgiveness is freedom that's the ultimate test the person who bears grudges and hoards resentment and builds a fortress of bitterness is never free they live in a prison where fear stands guard and their own feelings and frustrations forge the walls and set the barbed wire and provide the steel doors. And the cell is torment and the torture is real. And it's physical and it's mental and it's emotional And all of the resources that could ever have been spent on furthering the the gospel, the resources that could have been spent on prayer and love and encouragement are now spent on fear and division and discouragement. We wind up giving our resources to a useless cause when we're dedicated towards revenge. Revenge. On those who have wronged us. Forgiveness means we live by grace. Revenge means in in a certain sense that we're willing to place ourselves under the law. What do you want? I want justice. What do you want for yourself? Mercy. Jesus is asking you to extend To others, what's been extended to you. So what happens if we seek out and forgive others and they refuse or reject our attempts to offer grace and peace and the cessation of hostilities? I'm going to suggest to you that we get to experience the blessings of God in our lives. It only takes one person to forgive. But it takes two people to be reconciled. The ultimate question is there anybody you need to forgive? You might consider that just for a moment. We're going to have communion in a moment. Let's pray, and I'm going to have Carolyn come up and sing, but while we're praying, let's consider that question. Heavenly Father, Lord, clearly you've indicated to us that caring about each other, loving one another, making a provision for one another is a part of what it means to be a Christian. Lord, it seems to me that there are two great things that make forgiveness really difficult. The first is pain and the next is humiliation. Humiliation. But Lord, when we consider the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, when, when we remember what is said in Luke's gospel, how Jesus hung between two thieves, and that one asked to be remembered when Jesus came into paradise, Lord, it makes perfect sense to us that on that cross at Calvary there is the presence of pain. That on that cross at Calvary there's an ever increasing humiliation. And that Jesus offers us a glimpse that it's possible to hurt terribly and forgive completely when Jesus says to the, to the people standing by on the cross of Calvary Father, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, we know that so many people will come to the cross of Calvary and they will bow their knee and they will thank Jesus for his sacrifice and then live their lives as if it isn't true. Lord, we pray that as we have communion, as we consider the sacrifice of Jesus and thank him for a provision of hope that, Lord, we wouldn't be content to simply be the recipients of forgiveness, but that we would want it in our heart so that we would make it available to others. In Jesus' name.